Welcome to episode 197 of the Intermittent Fasting Podcast. If you want to burn fat, gain energy, and enhance your health by changing when you eat, not what you eat, with no calorie counting, then this show is for you. I'm Melanie Avalon, author of What, When, Wine, Lose Weight and Feel Great with Paleo-Style Meals, Intermittent Fasting, and Wine. And I'm here with my co-host, Jen Stevens, author of Delay, Don't Deny, Living an Intermittent Fasting Lifestyle. For more on us, check out ifpodcast.com, melanieavalon.com, and jenstevens.com. Please remember, the thoughts and opinions on this podcast do not constitute medical advice or treatment. So, pour yourself a cup of black coffee, a mug of tea, or even a glass of wine, if it's that time, and get ready for the Intermittent Fasting Podcast. Hi friends, I'm about to tell you how to get my favorite electrolytes for free, plus special announcement, Element's new chocolate medley is here. So when you think electrolytes, you might think summer and hot times and needing to stay hydrated. But did you know that hydration is actually super important in cold weather as well? There's an idea out there that cold weather reduces our hydration needs. That's not true. So in the cold, two main things can actually increase our metabolic rate. You may be working harder, tramping through the snow, and you can be wearing cumbersome winter clothing that can actually raise your energy needs by 10 to 20%. And as your metabolic rate raises, your sweat rate raises. And you need to replace those fluids with electrolytes. You also lose more water when it's cold through your breath. That's because cold temperatures contain significantly less water than hot temperatures, aka it's drier outside. When you breathe in that cold, dry air, your respiratory system actually acts like a humidifier so that your body can be warm and humid like it likes to be. Of course, that drains your hydration reserves as well. One study actually found that respiratory water loss after a full day of activity nearly doubled at freezing temperatures compared to the 70s. On top of that, when you're cold, you actually become less thirsty, possibly from blood vessel constrictions in the cold, which can trick the body into thinking the blood volume is higher than it is. In other words, it's cold out there. You probably need hydration. And electrolytes are so key for all of these cellular processes in your body, all of your energy production. It all requires electrolytes, but it can be hard to find electrolytes, which are clean, without unnecessary fillers, and which you can feel good about drinking. That's why I love Element. There's a reason I'm obsessed with it. There's a reason all you guys are as well. And like I said, I'm so excited because Element's new chocolate medley is here featuring chocolate mint, chocolate chai, and chocolate raspberry. And this is a limited time, so you definitely want to stock up on these now. Plus, you can get a free gift with purchase when you purchase that chocolate medley or other Element electrolytes. That's right, you can get a free sample pack, eight single serving packets for free with any Element order. It's a great way to try all eight flavors or share Element with a salty friend. You can get yours at drinklmnt.com slash ifpodcast. That's drinklmnt.com slash ifpodcast. By the way, those chocolates in that chocolate medley make delicious hot chocolates. And of course, as always, Element has a no questions asked refund, so you have nothing to lose. So go to drinklmnt.com slash podcast to get your free electrolytes.
One more thing before we jump in. Did you know that common ingredients found in skincare and makeup products can actually disrupt your endocrine system? These endocrine disruptors are a silent threat that can have significant impact on your health, including something that is very important to me, fertility. Your skin is your body's largest organ and what you put on it matters. Endocrine disruptors are chemicals that interfere with the natural hormonal communication in the body. It also matters during pregnancy. And that's one of the reasons I pay close attention to what I put on my skin while being pregnant. Studies have shown that exposure to endocrine disruptors can affect both male and female fertility. For women, these disruptors can lead to irregular menstrual cycles, ovulation issues, and even polycystic ovarian syndrome or PCOS. In men, they can reduce sperm quality and quantity, making it even more challenging to conceive. But it's not just about fertility. When it comes to fat loss, one of the reasons that endocrine disruptors can get in the way of fat loss is because a lot of our toxins are actually stored in our fat. It's a way that our bodies protect us from those toxins. These toxic compounds can even work synergistically, amplifying their harmful effects and making it that much harder to shed unwanted body fat. All of these reasons are why I am obsessed with a company called Beauty Counter. The founder actually started the company when she learned about the potential dangers of toxic chemicals and their link to health issues, specifically miscarriages and infertility. While pregnant, I make sure to only use Beauty Counter products. It's one of the only makeup lines that is officially recommended from the Environmental Working Group. What really sets Beauty Counter apart is their unwavering commitment to protecting us, the consumers, from the hidden dangers that lurk in conventional beauty products. Beauty Counter goes above and beyond, rigorously screening every single ingredient that goes into their products, ensuring that they are safe, clean, and free from harmful toxins. They're not just a beauty brand, they're a movement for change, advocating for stronger regulations in the beauty industry. With Beauty Counter, I know that I can trust that the skincare and makeup that I use are not only effective, but also safe for me and my family. They have skincare lines for every skin type, as well as so many other incredible products. I absolutely love their overnight resurfacing peel. It's my favorite way to get anti-aging benefits in a skincare product. The makeup is absolutely amazing. I have tried alternative beauty products in the past and none of them truly performed. But with Beauty Counter, the foundation is so amazing. It makes me feel like my skin can breathe and it looks so dewy and beautiful. You can shop with me at beautycounter.com slash Vanessa Spina. New customers can use the code CLEANFORALL20 for 20% off their first order. Beautycounter.com slash Vanessa Spina. All right, friends, now back to the show. Hi, everybody, and welcome. This is episode number 197 of the Intermittent Fasting Podcast. I'm Melanie Avalon, and I'm here with Jen Stevens. Hi, everybody. How are you today, Jen? I'm great. I am officially starting to work on my next book. Oh, yeah. That is exciting. It is exciting. It is not an intermittent fasting book. Last time when you wrote Fast Feast Repeat, well, no, that book you did start completely afresh, right? Or did you already have anything written? Well, when I started writing that one, I already had a complete outline of it. Yes, I had a complete outline that my agent, literary agent, sent out to different publishing houses, and then one of them bought it. It was St. Martin's Press of Macmillan, and so 
that's how that went. (laughs) But this time, when you're already a published author with a publishing house, they get, well, I guess it depends on your agreement, but they get first right of refusal, I guess. I don't know if that's the right publishing lingo, but they get the first chance to say yes to my next book and my next book. You get dibs, basically. Exactly. So... So we pitched a few things kind of in a casual way. And my editor's like, yeah, write that one. So that's what I'm doing. I'm so excited. I can't talk about much yet, but more to come. (laughs) I have a very tight deadline. So, Oh, you do? I do. Oh, man. Like, had you written anything or is it kind of like you got to just start everything now? I got to just start. I've been, you know, thinking about it for months and it's, it's, you know, it develops in my mind. Actually, here's what's really funny. I'm not going to announce what it's about yet, but this is based on concepts that I really wanted to write about almost 20 years ago. Oh, I did not know that. Yeah. I actually have a outline of a book I wanted to write. It's not the same book, but it was a similar concept. And I have it from like, gosh, probably almost 20 years ago, like I said. So it's a topic that's near and dear to my heart. So I'm just doing a little teaser there. But <laughs> my correlation to that is Taylor Swift and her most recent album, one of the lines she wanted to write in the song since like high school. Love it. But yeah, this is not a topic that's new to my heart, but I haven't written a book about it yet. But I have, like I said, that outline that is in this notebook from so long ago. I am very excited. But I mean, this book is not going to be anything like I would have written 20 years ago, obviously. But yeah, I know Melanie knows the topic, so I'm very excited about it. And uh, people in the intermittent fasting community, I think, will really like it. But also, it'll have a broader appeal. I am so excited. Yay! Me too. I have a lot of work to do. (laughs) But I ordered like things that I need. You know, I'm like one of those people that needs the right tools. So I'm very old school. So I got, I've ordered some new toner cartridges for my printer because I do a ton of printing because I like to work from paper. I like, I've ordered some highlighters. You print out like what you're doing and then you, I need paper. I got to have paper. I have old school highlighters. I get those little post-it flags so you can flag things. And, oh, I got a big file folder, like accordion folder, because I like to file the, the papers by topic. So <laughs> that's how I work. That's legit. It is. I Like I said, I'm old school. When I wrote my dissertation, oh, actually, here's a funny story. Right this today was the day that we're recording this, that I submitted my dissertation for approval. It showed up in my Facebook memories. Oh, wow. Yeah. Isn't that funny? Back in either, it was either 2008 or 2009. So that's been a long time. But when I was writing my dissertation, I just had piles of papers and, you know. It's crazy to think how long Facebook has been around. Facebook, I know. I don't know why I feel like, not, I don't feel like it's still new, but it doesn't feel like it's been around for like that part of my life that long. So, yep, I was new to Facebook. It was 2008. Funny story. I had, Well, I guess it's not a funny story, but I had been in the hospital for 10 days with Cal working on my dissertation, finishing it up because he had just had appendicitis really bad and it ruptured. And then he had to have a second surgery and we were just there forever. But we spent 10 days in the hospital, got out the day before Christmas Eve, but it really allowed me to finish things up. But Facebook was new to me back then. Yeah, actually, now that you say that, I remember when I first signed up for Facebook and it was 2008. Yeah, it it would have been 2008. So 
That is correct. (laughs) It was 2008 for me. And it's so much fun looking at those memories. But it also is funny that even now, you know, (laughs) so many years later, that's still how I research with my piles of papers and my highlighters. And that's just, I, I learn better on paper. And I think that we actually have research that shows that, like the tactile experience of paper. It's different than reading electronically. Yeah. No, yeah, it definitely is. I'm just thinking about all the ways I consume media, researching everything, like audiobooks versus Kindle versus the physical books. It does feel different. If I really need to learn something, I have to have the paper. Like I really do better with it. And I think that there's, like I said, research that supports that with kids as well. So I hope that we don't think that we should do away with paper books. Oh yeah. No, hundred percent. I have an update. Oh yay. What's your update? It was something I meant to say last episode. I interviewed Jason Fong. Yay. It's so exciting. I mentioned you a lot on that show just because I was saying that I mean, we talk about him all the time on this show. Did he say Jen Stevens, who's that? No, he did not. <laughs> I realized I just mentioned you. I didn't even say Jen Stevens. I just mentioned you. I, I mentioned you like I assumed he already knew who you were. He probably does. But I remember after I said it, I was like, oh, I guess I just sort of assumed that he knows who you are. Yeah, it was really, really great. And it's funny because when I first started my other show, the Melanie Avalon Biohacking Podcast, I really wanted to bring him on. And I assumed at that time that when I brought him on, it would be about fasting, but because that's his thing. But his newest book, as I mentioned before, and as listeners know, might know, is about cancer. So that was what the episode was about. And it was really, really fascinating. Really, I feel like listeners will will learn a lot. So, well, that's fabulous. I will always be a Jason Fung fan. Me too. He's so nice too, you know? He really is. Yeah. He seems like such a nice guy. He's just a really nice person. So that was quite an honor. I have one other really tiny little thing. So you know how last episode we were talking about, the listener had the question about like not being able to handle carbs and glucose. And we were talking about like fructose and glucose and glycogen and fat and all of that. And I mentioned that I was listening to an episode with Peter Tia that basically went deep, deep, deep into the metabolism of all of those things. So after we finished recording, I was like, you know what? I should probably finish listening to this episode. I did. And he actually brought up, you know how I always talk about that when they do studies on people overeating carbohydrates that really, it's only really a tiny amount that becomes fat. Yep. And often that their metabolism like increases. Increase. Yep. Yep. The speaker who I'm, I really am going to try to get on my show. He's a professor at Yale. So I emailed him last night to his professor email. We shall see. But he was talking about that process, but then he was actually saying that in people who are insulin resistant and who have metabolic issues, that it's actually can be, it can double like the normal rate of fat from carbs. That makes total sense though. Think about that. So if you have really, really high levels of insulin all the time, your body is primed to store more things. Okay. So I felt bad, but then I felt good because he said that and I was like, oh man. I was like, I've been like saying this whole time. And then Peter Tia asked him, he literally asked him about the studies I had read. He said, you know, that they do these studies that you know, test with overfeeding carbs and it really isn't that much of a change. So Peter wanted to clarify like, is that not the case in insulin resistance? And he said, yeah, it does seem to be more. So I felt a little bit better that I guess 
Peter Tia was thinking the same thing as me. But I mean, the good thing is he said it can double like the normal amount and the normal amount still isn't that high. It's still, I think, much harder to gain a lot of extra fat from excess carbs compared to extra fat, given the context. Most people do not just eat excess carbs in isolation. And that is why people are so confused. Because if you say, hey, I eat too many carbs, say, tell me what that looks like. And they'll start naming things like pizza and donuts and french fries, which are carbs and also full of fat. People just really are confused by what a carb is, like a cookie. If you said, is this a carb or a fat? People would probably say, oh, that cookie is a carb. No, (laughs) it has carbs, but it also has a ton of fat. So that's, I think, what really is confusing. People very rarely eat a high-carb, low-fat diet. Where it's actually low-fat. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They didn't discuss this specifically, but oh, I would love to bring him on my, on my podcast. I could just like pick his brain so much. But I do imagine, I wonder, like, in a really insulin-resistant person with metabolic syndrome, like, I wonder what it would look like if they only ate carbs and way over ate, like... Compared to an insulin-sensitive person, like how much fat could be created? Here's the study we need. We need to compare two groups of people doing the same exact thing, people who are metabolically healthy and lean compared to people who have metabolic syndrome and give them the exact same you know, ratio and see what happens. That'd be fascinating. You and I could design studies. We could. I totally could. I mean, and I, I joke about this in Feast Without Fear, my second book. And, you know, I I taught elementary kids how to do science fair projects <laughs> and controlling your variables is like science fair 101. And, you know, fourth graders can get it. I remember reading them when we were doing our science fair unit one year. I read them a nutritional study and, and the children were able to find the flaws. Fourth graders. They're like, you can't do that. They didn't control the variables. <laughs> I'm like, yes, I, I get it. Yes. It's so hard to, in a free living situation. Well, it is. It's easier with paper airplanes than it is with humans. Yeah. And the other thing I wanted to clarify, I think this is what I said last time, but I wanted to like double clarify because I finished listening to it. So like his primary theory, this guy who I really want to interview is that in insulin resistance, first it's not the liver that becomes insulin resistant first, it's the muscles. So like the the muscles throughout our body stop adequately taking up like glucose, like blood sugar, sugar from our food. And then the liver becomes insulin resistant. And then that kind of just, everything just goes from there way worse. All gunked up from there. Mm -hmm. And he, he was talking about, you know, the massive benefits of exercise for insulin resistance. This is something I was familiar with, but I think I'm realizing more and more how important exercise is because there is non-insulin dependent glucose uptake into the muscles. So like even if you are insulin resistant and can't get glucose into your muscles through the normal mechanism of insulin, you can through exercise. So that's why one reason it can be so, so important. Oh, that's fascinating. Makes sense. It totally makes sense. Our bodies are amazing. And man, they're not just little simple, you know, in out boxes. It's there's so much going on. Also, like the evolutionary benefit, like like insulin resistance is probably an evolutionary thing. It's our bodies trying to protect us from starvation. Everything our bodies do is to protect us. Yeah. 
It has good intentions. It just goes all wrong. Yeah, because we're doing all these wacky things that we think are the (laughs) the right things to do. And they're the opposite. And our body's like, let me help you with that. And like the body set point, which I have that interview coming up this week. So good times. Yeah, absolutely. So for listeners, the show notes will be at ifpodcast.com slash episode 197. I'll put links to all that stuff that we just talked about. Shall we jump into everything for today? Yep, let's get started. Hi, friends. I'm about to tell you how to get 20% off one of my favorite things for truly taking charge of your health, including testing something we talk about all the time, your insulin levels. So to live your healthiest and longest life possible, you need to understand what's going on inside. Inside Tracker takes a personalized approach to health and longevity from the most trusted and relevant source that would be your body. By using data from your blood, DNA, and fitness trackers, Inside Tracker gives you personalized and science backed recommendations on things that you can take control of to optimize your health. What I love about Inside Tracker is that Inside Tracker tests provide optimal ranges, not conventional ranges, for over 40 biomarkers, including magnesium, vitamin D, testosterone, cortisol, ferritin, which is the storage form of iron that is rare for doctors to test, ApoB, three key female biomarkers, and something I am so excited about, Inside Tracker recently added insulin testing to their ultimate plan. Friends, I am thrilled about this. We talk about insulin all the time on this show. It is so relevant to your metabolic health and your lifespan. In particular, insulin tracking is an early warning sign for several chronic diseases and is a key indicator of energy optimization. It can really let you know if your diet, if your fasting is working for you, you want to test your insulin. It is so hard to get doctors to test insulin, and now you can do it with Inside Tracker. The thing I love most about Inside Tracker is that they have a strict science-backed approach to everything they do. If your specific biomarker level is unoptimized, Inside Tracker actually provides recommendations that are backed by dozens of peer-reviewed studies and personalized to you. This process was set in place by their founders that include experts in aging, genetics, and biometric data from Harvard, Tufts, and MIT. And for a limited time, our audience can get 20% off their ultimate plan, which includes testing that insulin when you sign up at insidetracker.com slash IF podcast. So if you're ready to get a crystal clear picture of what's going on inside your body, along with science-backed recommendations to optimize what's not working, then visit insidetracker.com slash ifpodcast. And one of the things I really love about Inside Tracker is it helps you track all of your results, all of your tests over time, so you can see patterns, see your history. It makes predictions of where you'll be if you continue on your current trajectory. It is a game changer for making sense of your labs. I am obsessed with Inside Tracker. Again, you can get 20% off their ultimate plan, including testing your insulin levels at insidetracker.com slash ifpodcast. And we will put all of this information in the show notes. All right. So to start things off, we have a question from Becky. The subject is how do I know my maintenance weight? And Becky says, hi, Jen and Melanie. I love your show. Super fun. Thanks. I've been fasting for four and a half months now. I usually do a five-hour window, but I am not super strict and sometimes open it up to eight hours and sometimes tighten it to three. I clean fast all of my fasts. 
It worked fairly well and I love how I feel, but my results are interesting slash confusing. I started at 182 pounds. I'm 5'8 with an athletic build and very quickly got to the mid 170s. As the weeks went on, my weight loss slowed though. Interesting to look back at the Happy Scale app and see that it was two pounds per week initially, then one, then 0.7, then 0.5, then 0.3, etc. Now for weeks, it has been 0.1 pound per week. Well, actually for the past couple of weeks, it has been no loss at all because I've been eating Christmas goodies. Currently, I'm hovering between 168.5 and 170 pounds. My question is this. How do I know what my final slash maintenance weight will be? When I got married 12 years ago, I weighed 167.5 pounds. I looked fantastic and I was super proud of myself. Like I said, I have an athletic build. I've always been a competitive swimmer and I've competed in triathlons and other races for fun. I'm happy with the way I look and my husband tells me I don't need to lose any more, but I wonder if I should be shooting for a lower weight or is it even possible? I wear a size eight. So I think perhaps I am just a very dense person. Your thoughts slash insights would be appreciated. Thank you so much, Becky. This is such a great question because so many of us get hung up on that number on the scale, which is why I ended up throwing my scale away. <laughs> you know, I've told this story a million times and I haven't seen a number on the scale since 2017. I haven't seen a number. So the question is, how do I know my maintenance weight? And the thing that I think is so important is that you can't know. I've seen so many people really, really stress over a number. Like they get in their minds that they have to weigh, you know, like, like let's say for you, you said you weighed 167.5, Becky, and you looked fantastic and you were proud of yourself and your husband thinks you look great where you are right this minute, but you remember 167.5 as, as a golden weight for you. So even though right now you weigh between 168.5 and 170, which by the way is statistically you're there at <laughs> the same weight, you know, because weight goes up and down, you're just right in there. Even with the margin of error, if you have a different scale, you could weigh exactly the same amount and your scale is just weighing you differently. Does that make sense, Melia? Do you understand what I'm trying to say? There's like a standard error of measurement with any tool or device or anything. So maybe your 168 to 170 now is the same as your other scale was at 167.5. But my point is that if you decided you had to see 167.5 on the scale in order to be happy, I think you'd be setting yourself up for long-term failure and disappointment just because our bodies are naturally going to fluctuate. And so much of it depends on our body composition. You know, if you're super muscular, which you say that you are, you've got that athletic build and, and you feel great in your body and you look great in your clothes and you're a size that you like, I would 100% forget about the number. You could even gain weight on the scale and lose fat and be leaner, but your weight is higher on the scale. So I think you are now at the point where your scale number is meaningless. So right now, take photos of yourself wearing, you know, an outfit that you feel great in, or even if you have a pair of pants that are a little tight, make those your honesty pants. Take photos from all the different angles with those pants on. And then three months from now, take the photos again and compare. I bet you'll find you're a little bit leaner three months from now, but your weight may not change at all on the scale. So 
I would consider that you're right now in your maintenance range and let your body do what it does with body recomposition over time. And you have my permission to never worry about a number again. That's why I love the shape of scale so much. I just worry about what my overall color trend is doing and I don't have to see a number. What do you have to say, Melanie? I love that. And I, so I'm just pondering how crazy technology and the concept of time is because I am going to refer Becky to an episode that I have not recorded, but will have aired <laughs> two days ago or three days last Friday. So when this episode comes out, this is a Monday, the Friday that just passed, I will have aired that episode about set point, although I haven't even recorded it yet. But I anticipate... <laughs> We're time traveling. We're time traveling, traveling fasters. I anticipate I will be talking about a lot of this because what's really interesting is she talks about, you know, she saw a very consistent weight loss trend on the happy scale with the, you know, the two pounds and then 0.7, then 0.5, then 0.3, and now 0.1. And that's something, at least Jonathan Baylor, who I'm interviewing, he has a documentary coming out in his book, Set Point something. The word set point is in the title. He does talk about, you know, as you are losing weight, a lot of things are happening as you're losing weight. So there's less of you. So you lost weight. So automatically your daily energy expenditure automatically is not going to be as high because the more you weigh, the higher your daily energy expenditure. So there's that second thing, because we don't know at all, but before I say all of this, I'm not saying Becky, I, I agree with everything Jen said. I'm just going into this concept of you know, what might be happening with weight loss slowing down as you lose weight. So the second thing is depending on what you're eating and depending on your fasting habits and everything like that, a lot of people who are doing conventional, typical dieting, so this really doesn't even probably apply to Becky, the body does perceive it, the weight loss as like a negative that it has to combat. So the metabolism, you know, can also slow down. So it becomes harder and harder to lose weight the more and more you lose weight. And there is this idea of, of set points that the body reaches where it doesn't really want to lose, you know, much weight beyond that. And if you think about it, it also doesn't want to gain much weight beyond that. That's exactly right. Which is, yeah, that's something he was talking about to reframe. Like, exactly. Like, like you know, we've got some people in the group that really just have, like I was talking about, I don't think I really explored it, but they want to see a number on the scale that's, I don't know, I'm just kidding, 10 pounds lower than they are right now. And so no matter what they do, they can't see that magic number. Their body is happy where they are. It's not gaining. It's not losing. It's just this is where your body is happy. And I really think we need to embrace a point where it becomes easy for our bodies to maintain and you don't have to stress about it. You can reframe the set points as really working in your favor. Most of the studies that they do on set points, people who are chronically dieted down, their bodies try really, really hard to gain back the weight. And then people who are chronically overfed, I mean, most people gain weight. Some people gain a lot of weight. Some people barely gain any weight. But regardless of the amount of weight gain, the body, you know, I'm pretty sure in all of the studies, the body makes compensatory adaption. So like if you, you know, eat way, way over your calories, it's very unlikely that your metabolism is going to like slow down from that. You know, like you're most likely going to burn more, even if it's not burning enough, obviously to mitigate the weight gain, the body still fights it. So there'll be a lot more information once I actually record that show, which I'm recording in like three days from now, I think. But I think Jen 
answered it really well. Because Becky sounds happy with her body. And she talks about how when she weighed practically the exact same thing when she got married 12 years ago and looked fantastic. I really think, Becky, you are in your maintenance range. And that's the point I want to keep hammering home. Maintenance range. You know, we're recording this. It's almost New Year's Eve. We're not quite, you know, out of the holiday season. I'm pretty sure right now I'm higher on my maintenance range than I was, you know, before Thanksgiving. But that's okay. I am very sure my weight goes up and down within that range and has for all these years. You know, I'm not having to buy bigger clothes and not having to, you know, get all new smaller clothes. So focus on that range idea instead of like a number. That's one thing I want to ask him is what is the typical like amount of pounds for that range? Because he did say in the book that it's about 20 pounds. Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised that like... You know, it's pretty hard. I don't think mine fluctuates 20. Sorry, not that it fluctuates 20 pounds, but there's a 20-pound range that your body is going to fight to stay within. Okay. So, like, it's going to be really, really hard to gain more than 20 pounds. It's going to be really, really hard to lose more than 20 pounds. Well, depending on what you're doing. Just basically that that might be the, (laughs) the like, window, no pun intended, that you have to work with. That makes sense. But it just, it makes me really sad when someone's fighting over 10 pounds. It's really, really hard to force your body to be lower than your body wants to be. Like, I am very lucky and I know it, but I I know that, you know, my set point, you know, if you will, of where I am right now is where my body likes to be because I've maintained it over all these years since, you know, since I lost the weight with intermittent fasting. But if I decided I needed to see 10 pounds down, I would have to work really, really, really hard to do it. Could I do it? I don't even know if I could do it. I don't think I could lose 10 more pounds and maintain there without really being miserable. So I want to be happy. That's something I do really want to ask him. I've like heard this theory floating around that if, and I asked for in my Facebook group, which everybody should join, IF Biohackers, I asked what questions people had about Setpoint. And a lot of people wanted to know like, there's this idea out there that if you hold a weight for like a certain amount of time that your body sort of accepts that new set point. Research has shown that in general. We don't know a ton about set point. Maybe he's going to, you know, say a lot of things that are new. That would be exciting. But when I was researching set point for fast feast repeat, and it's still a little nebulous, like what you can do to lower that set point. You know, that whole diet that I did that was so crazy, the Shangri-La diet. Yeah, where you're chugging the oil. His theory, he was a doctor that wrote it. His theory was that the, you know, when you break the calorie association with taste or something or other, that it would lower your set point. I'm like, I'm going to lower my set point. I'm chugging this oil. That was so funny. (laughs) I'm also thinking the calories in, calories out model is just so not comprehensive. Um, One of the other things in that Peter Tia episode that the guest was talking about, which this is something I've been familiar with as well, but this is a banned drug that nobody should take because people died from it. But have you heard of DNP? I'm not sure. I'm just really fascinated by this. So it was like one of the first anti-obesity drugs and it was in the 1930s. The way it worked was it basically increased, it's called like uncoupling. Basically it made cells just burn energy as heat. So it basically just told your cells to just burn calories and not like basically just like ratcheted up people's metabolisms to the point that people actually died from it and it was removed from the market. But that just goes to show that 
like with signaling of things that your body, we can eat things, but it it says nothing to whether, how those cells, you know, are going to burn it or not. Like if they, if they want to, if they have the signaling, which was happening like with that drug, for example, or maybe other lifestyle options, I, I don't know what all like leads to that, but if they want to quote, want to, they can just burn calories as heat, which I guess is what happens a lot in those overfeeding studies. Yep. And, you know, I really think that insulin has a lot to do with your set point, honestly. I think that people with a high level of circulating insulin are likely to have a high set point. And as you lower your insulin levels, I think it lowers your set point. Do I have like a study I can pull out that says that? No. But I do think that's instrumental. Actually, that was one of the things he was saying in the book was that, I don't remember exactly, it was something to the effect of people who are you know, thin compared to people who are obese, it oftentimes, well, I guess there is an insulin resistance issue, but as far as like their experience of food and the the calories they're getting from that and the energy, it's almost, it's like the same. It's just that the body set point is different or the insulin might be playing a factor. But what I'm saying is basically people who are obese might be eating less and doing all the things, but because of their set point or that or insulin or whatever it may be to their body, it won't have the same effect. I'm not saying this very well. It was just a really interesting idea of like underweight and overweight people sort of being the same, but the set point just being at a different place. There's just so much we still don't know because the body, it responds to everything. It's not like you know, just like you mentioned a, a little while ago, it's hard to do a study and control the variables with people. Because even when you try to control all the variables, your body's got a million other variables back in there. <laughs> you know, you're like, I'm going to do this, but your body's like, well, then I'm going to do this. And we don't even know all the things it's doing sometimes. So, And my body might do something different than your body does with the same inputs. And it might depend on my insulin levels or whatever, my gut microbiome, my genetics. We talked about this before, but you could have a thin person who you would think is more insulin resistant because they, they don't gain weight as easily. It can actually be because like their fat cells, instead of dividing to form new fat cells to gain weight, they just become inflamed and just get bigger and bigger and bigger and become insulin resistant, but it makes it harder for them to gain weight compared to people who easily gain weight. But it's because when their fat cells are full, the fat cells divide and form new fat cells, which actually protects them from insulin resistance. So it's actually more healthy metabolically, but they're more likely to become overweight, which is really interesting. So basically you have so many things going on, you know, behind the scenes. They think that's one of the things in Asian populations because Asian populations don't have as much of a obesity problem, but they have a lot of like metabolic issues. So it's probably a genetic thing where their fat cells don't divide to form new fat cells to protect from an influx of excess calories. That's fascinating. So many things. Our bodies are great and everything they do are trying to help us. This is true. That was very interesting. I look forward to talking to you, Melanie, after you talk to him. Oh yeah, I know. Report back. Yeah. All right. So here we go. The next question is from Samantha, and it is two parts fasting burps slash supplements in Canada? Question mark. She says, Hello, ladies. You are so great, and it's lovely to have your company and great banter to listen to during these interesting times. You often keep me company during home renovations. 
I've been trying to catch up on the podcast right from the beginning and getting pretty close. Some of the many great tips kind of blur together as I've learned so much, so I was hoping for some advice. I started with 16.8, quickly moved to 19.5, and often stretch as far as 21.3, basically one meal a day. I've thrown a weekly 36-hour fast in a couple of times now just to try it and to rotate my clock if I have brunch plans with family. I feel great, and my lifestyle really suits the IF lifestyle, so thank you. I have had a few typical digestion ups and downs as expected, but tweaking here and there as I go. Right now, though, I have odd bloating. There were a few days when I wished I could poke my tummy with a pen to release the pressure. I would give anything for a burp. Some helpful advice from the Facebook groups suggested soda water. I thought it odd to add carbonation to a gassy situation, but it seemed to help a bit. Why? Now, for the last few days, I've found myself burping on an empty stomach, no soda. Usually, 14 to 20 hours into the fast, I burp repeatedly. I did the baking soda test over a week ago and no burp. Now I burp on an empty stomach. Not enough gas, too much gas, I'm confused. What's the mechanism problem here? So far, I've been guilty of making too many changes at once regarding my food choices. It's been hard to track what is good and bad, so I want to slow the changes down. I've been doing IF for 12 weeks, and I think I'm down about 12 pounds. I'm really happy with the big picture and in it for the long haul. I would love to lose another 10 to 15 pounds, but mostly just want to feel good. So far, I often feel great, but sporadically have this bloating and gassy issue. Is there a particular supplement I should try first? Is this an enzyme slash probiotic issue or an HCL challenge? Lastly, I'm Canadian, so I sure hope all these amazing products and hacks are available up here too. Otherwise, I may have my research cut out for me. All the best to you both, and thanks again for such great podcasting. Thanks, Sam from Canada. All right, Samantha. So thank you so much for your question. So a lot of things going on here. So I did research on the drinking like carbonated water for stomach issues. And the consensus on the internet is that it's really most likely an old wives tale. A lot of the original forms of soda that would have been used were things like ginger soda. So maybe the ginger was having an effect or... Something about like, you know how Coca-Cola is made from like the cola bean? Something about the original form of that with the cola, I'm not sure. The thing that made the most sense to me was that oftentimes GI distress is, this is something I knew before, but I saw it again last night. Jen, did you know that our, our stomachs don't actually have like pain receptors? Well, no, I don't think I did. So like any discomfort we feel is like pressure, not pain. And so a lot of stomach discomfort comes from, you know, gas, food, bloating, and the associated pressure from that. And supporting stomach motility can relieve it. And so there's this theory that the carbonation stimulates stomach motility that gets things moving and relieves the stomach. In any case, it seems to mostly be, I mean, if it works for you, great, but I couldn't really find much science behind it. That said, as far as the cause of the burping, so this is actually something because I struggled with small intestinal bacterial overgrowth for a long time, SIBO, and that is an overgrowth of bacteria in your small intestine. So higher up in your GI tract than there should be for that type and amount of bacteria. And something that people experience a lot with SIBO, a lot 
is GI distress, burping, gas, especially when they'll go fasting, they will start burping. And (laughs) the consensus and all the people who struggle with it is that it seems to be a, oftentimes like a die-off effect while fasting of these bacteria releasing gas. One of the primary bacteria that's associated with GI issues and especially SIBO and especially IBS with constipation is, it's not actually a bacteria, it's an archaea. It's a methane producing bacteria called like archaebacteria. I'm not really sure. In any case, these little nasties, they release methane gas as a byproduct and they also release it. I don't know when exactly. I feel like they release it when they're digesting substrates, but then people seem to experience them releasing it while fasting. So I don't, like I said, I don't know if that's a die-off effect. That methane gas, I know this is getting really granular. That methane gas actually serves as a neurotransmitter in the stomach that further slows motility, making things worse. A lot of people do find that if they can get that under control though, that it, it resolves. That's why I love, and so many people in my groups have reported this back, Autron Teal. It's a supplement. It's all natural, but it's made with three different compounds. It's like some polyphenols and things like peppermint, horse, chestnut extract, and one other thing. And they work together to target specifically that type of bacteria. And so many people find so much relief. So I would definitely 100% Samantha consider trying that. You can get it at lovemytummy.com slash IFP and the coupon code IFP will get you 10% off. As far as the stomach acid, the baking soda. So what's going on there is that we should have a certain amount of stomach acid, which is really, really important to digest our food. It's really important to keep our stomach free of parasites. And it's it's very antibacterial, anti-parasite. It keeps things clean. A lot of people actually struggle with not enough stomach acid because of the diets that we're eating. Our stress levels decrease it. So oftentimes people actually need more stomach acid rather than less. That's why they'll take things like HCL, which is supplemental stomach acid basically that you can take. I personally use it to support my food. The baking soda test is because baking soda reacts with stomach acid to create is it carbon dioxide? It releases a gas. Probably so. Yeah. So when people do that challenge, it's basically trying to see how much baking soda do you need to create a burp. So in theory, if you have adequate stomach acid, when you take the baking soda, you'll burp pretty soon. So if you don't ever burp or if it, it takes longer than three to five minutes you might be really low in stomach acid. So what it sounds like to me, Samantha, so I would 100% try supporting your digestion. So a lot of people can try enzymes and or HCL. Since since it seems like you probably have low stomach acid because you didn't even, you never burped with the baking soda, I would start supplementing HCL with your food to help try to make things break down and support motility. And I would also try that Autron Teal. Yeah. The way they say to take it on the bottle is to take it with meals or like before meals, I think. I actually take it in the morning because I do one meal a day and then I, I take it in the morning fasted and that works really well for me. But I think people also will take it the way the bottle prescribes. But I think those two things, and then she also wanted to know about Canadian supplements. I don't know if Autron Teal ships to Canada. I, I hope they do. I feel like they might let us know. (laughs) The HCL you can definitely get in Canada. Jen, do you have thoughts on all of that? That was a lot. (laughs) 
I knew you were going to talk about SIBO. I just had a feeling that sounded like SIBO to me. And I'm glad that my hunch was right. Because I've seen that historically in, in the SIBO communities, like they'll experience exactly what Samantha's experiencing when they do fasting, which tends to really help with SIBO, but they often will get like burping while fasting if they do have those methane producing organisms. It makes total sense, you know, because the the gas is coming from somewhere and it's coming up, you know, so it's coming up through that mechanism from the small intestine. So that makes total sense. Yeah. Something else you could try, Samantha, dietary wise is a lot of people benefit from a low FODMAP approach. And that's basically research I've seen. You can get all of your nutrition from it, but it's basically just the types of carbs that are less likely to support fermentation from your from gut bacteria, from the gut microbiome. So that might be a dietary approach to try as well in your one meal a day. And you can get my app. It's called Food Sense Guide. It's at melanieavalon.com slash Food Sense Guide. And it actually has over 300 foods and it shows their, their FODMAPs. If they're high, low, medium, and FODMAPs, not just FODMAPs, there's 11 other compounds. So <laughs> you can see everything else like histamine and oxalates and gluten and lectins, but the FODMAPs might be something to try. A low FODMAP diet. Again, that was a lot. Yeah, I think that's good good advice. I think you covered it well. Do you see that in your groups, Jen, people burping during the fast? No, <laughs> not really, not a lot. I mean, it doesn't come up much. Oh, that's so interesting. I, I, I thought that maybe it would have come up a lot, but yeah, it comes up all the time in the SIBO groups. Well, that makes sense. You know, they've got that, that in common. All right. So we have a question from Jennifer and the subject is question. And Jennifer says, hello, ladies. I'm new to intermittent fasting, but all of my life, I've not really enjoyed breakfast, but did it anyway, because I was worried that my metabolism would slow down. After listening to you, I have been able to fast guilt-free. So thank you for that freedom. Before intermittent fasting, I had been on a keto diet for about two years. As such, I think that my body fat adapted pretty quickly. I was easily able to immediately go down to just one meal a day, and I opened my window between 6 and 6.30 p.m. with a non-alcoholic beverage most days and a glass of wine two days a week. I also have a light snack, such as raw veggies and dip. We usually sit down to dinner between 7 and 7.30. My husband rolls his eyes at my new fasting lifestyle and did the same with my keto diet. He is happy to eat simple carbs, does not seem to care much about what he eats, and loves to feed himself and my two boys, ages 12 and 9, processed foods. My question to you pertains to when I sit down to eat with my family. I'm usually the one who is making and eating something different than the rest of my family. I'm more flexible on the weekends and usually will join in with what the family is eating as long as I get to pick. This is fine with me and we have adapted to this lifestyle. However, during the week, since my children and husband are eating processed, partially digested foods, they are done with dinner very quickly. It doesn't take long to wolf down cheeseburger. But for me, this is my one and only meal of the day. I like to savor my food and eat slowly. Also, I'm eating whole foods, such as a very large salad and raw vegetables, which take a lot longer to eat than processed foods. I find myself rushing through dinner just so I am not the last one eating with everyone staring at me like I am the glutton who is still eating when everyone else has pushed their chairs back from the table. Also, I am usually the one driving the dinner conversation, which makes it even more difficult to eat quickly. How do I still enjoy my dinner, eat slowly, enjoy conversation with my family without feeling like a glutton because everyone else is done and I'm still eating? I find myself stealing a few bites of my dinner while doing the dishes just so I don't have to make everyone wait for me. 
Do you have any suggestions on how to deal with this? Thanks so much. I love your show. It provides me not only with motivation, but validation for what I am doing, despite the naysayers I live with. She also says, I've been catching up on all of your episodes. I'm worried that I might miss your answer. Do you also email a response in case I don't find it for quite some time if you read my question on the air? For that last question, because we do get that occasionally, in case listeners are wondering, we actually, we don't email when the question comes on air. So you have to keep listening if you want to know if your question, I wish we could. There's just so, so many things to keep up with. Yeah. So that's the answer to that. But Jennifer, we are answering your question. So hopefully you're listening. I thought this was a really great question because we recently we've been getting this question a lot about oftentimes moms not wanting to eat dinner and having an earlier window and struggling with that aspect. But this was the first time getting a question where she does do the one meal day dinner, but there's this timing issue. And I, I just thought this was a great question. So Jen, do you have advice? Yeah, I think that you have two options. One of them is, and this might be a wacky one, you know, but but this really might be your answer. You like to open your window between 6 and 6.30. Maybe have your separate meal then. Like eat the food you want to eat that's going to take you a while to eat. And you're not going to feel like someone's watching you or you're rushing or you're whatever. And then when your family eats between 7 and 7.30, you've already eaten. You sit with them, you keep the conversation rolling, you keep them company, you have your family time, and you don't feel like you're stressed out with like having to shove your food in or finish it later secretly. Just say, you know, I'm going to eat earlier and then I'm going to sit with you and maybe have your raw veggies and dip when they're having their dinner. You know, just flip it, flip your snack, have your meal, then have, have a little something else. That's one suggestion. The other is, Tell your family how you feel. And, you know, you can say, I understand that y'all are done first. It would make me so happy if you would sit with me and then, you know, let me eat slowly and we can just use this as visiting time. But the part about where you are feeling like you're a glutton, that's something you're putting on yourself. I I guarantee your husband and kids haven't said you're a glutton. Stop eating. They're not saying that. You've got to get rid of that thought. Stop putting that thought on yourself because, you know, you're eating high quality whole foods. It takes longer to eat those foods. It's 100% you're not being a glutton. And I do not think that they think that. They might be irritated because they want to go do something else instead of sit with you. They might be thinking that because <laughs> I know families, but they're, they're not thinking that you're a glutton. My mother was always a really slow eater. And I can remember being a kid and sitting there and like, come on, hurry up, especially if we were at a restaurant. She was taking forever and just really, really slow. But it wasn't that I felt like she was a glutton. It was that I was ready to move on and do something different. So think about either eating beforehand or, you know, having a conversation with them and saying how you feel. Just say, you know, I feel like I'm having to rush. I feel like I'm having to eat really fast. It would make me so happy if you could just, you know, sit with me while I finish. You know, either one of those would would be a solution. What do you think, Melanie? Yeah, I love that so much. So speaking to both. So the first option that you gave about eating before and then finishing with the family, I guess if she did have the conversation about the glutton and didn't feel like a glutton, because that might might solve it. Because if, if she has a conversation and realizes that she doesn't, you know, that's not perceived that way, the alternative to eating more before and finishing with them would be eating with them and then finishing after. 
which is sort of like what she's doing. Yeah. So, but you know, maybe, you know, you feel like you don't have to make everyone wait for you. We're we're great at not wanting to put anyone else out. But you know what? Maybe they need to be put out and sit there and be with you as a family and you know like just say we're going to sit here as a family and spend some family time. So it's not just about eat the food, go. Yeah. At restaurants, I'm always this way. Like I am always eating right until the very very end, eating slowly, and then usually everybody wants dessert and I just want like another steak. That's when I eat everybody else's like leftover meat as well. And I feel like I did probably used to feel like a glutton with that because I literally will eat other people's leftovers, but I know I'm not, and I know what's going on. So I don't really care. I don't take on other people's feelings about how I'm eating at this point. Now, when I weighed 210 pounds, I think I I felt more judged. And if someone was like, no wonder you you weigh 210 pounds, look at how you eat. You know, I, I think I was very sensitive at that time, but now I'm fortunate, obviously. I'm not overweight. I'm able to disconnect from that, and I don't feel food judgments from people. I don't accept it, no matter what I'm eating. Even if I'm choosing to eat something you know, that's different for me, however much of it I eat is is my own business at this point, right? You know, you know what I mean? But I I do have a lot of sympathy and empathy for people who are still overweight and feel that judgment because I remember feeling it then. I did feel it. And so I don't have words of wisdom other than it's normal to want to eat a big meal. That I mean, we're what's that Rob Wolf book, Wired to Eat? We are wired to enjoy eating a substantial meal. And when I was overweight, I felt guilty about it. But now I, I realize that's how we're our bodies feel great when not overeating, but eating a substantial meal feels good. And we shouldn't feel guilty about it. Exactly. All right. So Jennifer, definitely write back and let us know if you implement any of these and how it goes. It kind of reminds me of we got that feedback last week. From Bronwyn. She had a suggestion for a listener who was struggling with what I said at the beginning of this question, you know, having an earlier eating window and not wanting to eat with the family. And she was saying that once she told her family, like the situation, it was actually completely fine. So you might be surprised just talking about it, like Jen suggested. And if you're eating something different anyway, I think that makes it easier to just eat at a different time. Because really the family time being around the table is the being together. That's what it's about. It's about being together. Exactly. Good times. (laughs) Well, this has been absolutely wonderful. So a few things for listeners before we go. If you'd like to submit your own questions for the podcast, you can directly email questions at ifpodcast.com or you can go to ifpodcast.com and you can submit questions there. You can find all of the stuff that we like at ifpodcast.com slash stuff we like. The show notes for today's episode will be at ifpodcast.com slash episode 197. You can follow us on Instagram, my favorite. I am Melanie Avalon, Jen is Jen Stevens. And I think that is everything. Anything from you, Jen, before we go? No, I think that's it. All right. Well, I will talk to you next week. I guess next time I talk to you, it might be, depending on when we schedule, it might be 2021. I think it will be. Yeah. And even though people are listening to this one in 2021, we're still in the past. We haven't time traveled to the future yet. (laughs) So I'll see you next year. All right. Next year. Bye. Bye. 
Thank you so much for listening to the Intermittent Fasting Podcast. Please remember that everything discussed on the show is not medical advice. We're not doctors. You can also check out our other podcasts, Intermittent Fasting Stories and the Melanie Avalon Biohacking Podcast. Theme music was composed by Leland Cox. See you next week.